the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. What do you believe about the polls you see this time of year? Are they important inputs to your voting decision making? Or are they distractions that reduce complex decisions to a horse race mentality? We're going to talk today, just eight days before the November 22 elections, about what polling actually is, how it works, and why our guest, data journalist Elliot Morris, thinks it's good. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. One of the great and at the same time confounding things about our lives these days is the extent to which data fills our lives. We've got this immense computational power in our pockets and often in the palms of our hands, and that means We have a lot more information at our disposal than we did just five or ten years ago. And that means we're subject to millions of perspectives about our lives, about our city, about our country, and they're all right there, ready for us to digest. Americans also have more access to public polling data than ever before. It's part of this huge information flow that mostly comes through our phones and our computers. We now have knowledge about how our fellow citizens feel about all kinds of things, higher prices, the reality of climate change, their support for the sitting president or the Congress. And of course, with the midterms just a week away, we are inundated right now with polling data. I got to say, as a member of the public and as a journalist, sometimes it feels hard to properly interpret polling data. There are lots of different kinds of polls, of course, and each of them kind of tells us something different about the race or the issue that they're asking about. There are a lot more projections a lot more money chasing after how the public feels on a range of issues. And that makes it hard to know how much stock to put into so many collective responses to things. How much can we trust one poll or the other or the entire polling institution itself? Go back to 2016, and I think a lot of people were especially turned off by polls after seeing so many polls that said that Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton was going to win, lots of people decided after that election, when she didn't win, that they were never going to look at polls again. And look, I got to sympathize with that feeling. There was a lot of frustration around our politics at that point as well. The disappointment that people felt about the election, I think, helped cast polls in a really dark light. But 
pause for a second and think if that makes sense. Don't we really need to understand what's going on in the various campaigns? And what can we really understand from polling? That's the real question. What should we expect to know from looking at a poll? And how do we accurately read polls, especially when there are so many different kinds of polls in our politics? Also, in a democracy, are public opinion polls not some of the most important pieces of information we could possibly know, whether you're a politician, whether you're a citizen, or a journalist? This is the kind of case that data journalist and U.S. correspondent for The Economist, G. Elliott Morris, makes. He analyzes polls all the time in his work. And in his new book, Strength in Numbers, he takes a step back to explore the history of polling, how it works, and why ultimately he thinks it's a really important tool for democracies to function and to flourish. I'm really pleased to welcome Elliot here to discuss his book, to explain polling, and to make the case for this tool that makes the American public's opinions the center of our attention during campaign season. Elliot, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me here. And what a great introduction for the book. You're really setting up, I think, a good conversation about, about the poll. Oh, so thank thanks. you. I'm, I'm actually really excited about this as, of course, a journalist like yourself who is uh, constantly taking in polling data and trying to make sense of it. Uh, so let's start here. Uh, let's just explain political polling, how it works, and explain the broad spectrum of political polling. I think that's one of the things that eludes so many people uh, and makes them, uh, you know, confused and angry sometimes because they don't really understand that there are lots of different kinds of polls and they're all measuring different things. Yeah, well, look, you started off at a big data distinction, a, a bit paradoxically, you're setting up a paradox, I think. We have all this data around us, health data, um, consumer behavior data. We, we have ads targeted to us online based on our internet browsing data. So shouldn't polling data also have a reliable indicator? Not about us as individuals, but as us in aggregate. Should this hypothetical survey of a thousand Americans, shouldn't it be really accurate? We live in this age of computers and smartphones, right? So that, I think, is what sets up some pretty impossible expectations for the pollsters, as recent elections have shown. And it's not necessarily, I don't think, um, sort of exclusive to the polling industry that they would miss this expectation. In fact, I think it's sort of a miscalibration of the entire big data conversation. And polls are not big data, actually, as much as we would like to think they are, as much as you know, I, I work on some of the back ends of polling. So as much as we use data and statistics and machine learning um, to, get a, to get polls to match up with what we think is sort of reality. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a survey of a couple hundred or maybe a thousand people if a pollster has a lot of money. Um, and those people answering the phone when a pollster calls or clicking on a survey online, let's say there are a thousand of them, just for example's sake, they might not be totally representative of the public, of, say, the United States or maybe just Michigan um, racially. Uh, they, might, you know, they might be too white. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're too upper class. 
Um, maybe they have too high of incomes or they're too educated or something like this. And so pollsters have to do a lot of basic statistical wizardry to get those numbers, those population benchmarks to match up with the population so that they can say, we have, you know, a representative survey based off of, you know, based on these demographic variables. Therefore, we think that we are drawing good inferences on the other things we care about, about politics, about life, about culture. Um, and that's, I mean, that's not big data. That is small <laughs> data. And that's a really tough problem for pollsters to solve. Um, and, and that's true uh, in, in what pollsters call issue polling, which is just questions about issues, about policies, about their life, like I'm saying. And it's even truer on elections when people are expecting, readers like you and me even sometimes, expecting just laser-like predictive accuracy from mm-hmm. these polls that this, you know, Governor Whitmer plus one or two is going to be right on average from these polls. But as recent elections, I think, have hopefully started maybe to nail into people's heads, um, this is not, you know, the polls do not offer that level of precision because of all this other guesswork, because of all these other corrections that have to go on under the hood. Would it it be fair to say that even as we uh, become more sophisticated in our use of of data to to do lots of different things and and here I'm thinking specifically uh, about the redistricting process which uses an incredible array of data to determine um, how uh, how political boundaries should be drawn and and I mean it's so specific in some cases that um, they can talk about which houses on which blocks should be in which districts in order to get uh, a certain outcome. Um, uh, that that at the same time, polling, um, as you point out, is experiencing uh, something of a of a I guess a lapse in the in the benefits from from all of that incredible power that that we're able to be more specific in other arenas, but. In in the polling arena, it's uh, we're 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 still struggling, I guess, to, to 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 make sense of what polls actually tell us and and how accurate they are. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the advantage of some of these redistricting simulations is that they have the actual numbers on actual behavior from people voting. They know. Uh, voting. They're not their votes, but whether or not they voted. Um, and they can use polling data and other data, right, to come up with pretty good models about how everyone in every single house in America voted in the last election. And on average, that sort of thing is useful in drawing districts. Um, but I should say maybe those models also wouldn't provide the sort of laser-like predictive accuracy that we come to expect from the polls. Um, I, I do think it's an expectations game. And the, the reason that polls will never be able to meet those expectations, I don't think they ever have, even in the sort of 2008 and 2012 era where the polls were, you know, allegedly calling 50, election, 50 states correctly in every election, right? Mm-hmm. Even in that era, the polls, suffered from the same fundamental problem that they do today, and that is you cannot talk 
to a representative sample of Americans if you just call a thousand of them because response rates are pretty low because the type of people who will talk to you about politics for 20 or 30 minutes are weirdos like you and me, <laughs> statistically <laughs> speaking. And, and um, those, and you, you can't necessarily remove all of the error that that brings into the process just by saying, you know, by fiat, oh, this poll needs to have, you know, 11% black voters. So we'll just force the percentages to add up to, to 11. Um, and that's a fundamental problem with polling, the, the, that the people you talk to might not be representative of the people you don't. And pollsters can get around that problem to a certain degree of accuracy. They cannot get around that problem to like a decimal point degree of accuracy, which is in this era of prediction and big data, what we want from them, they'll just never be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, G. Elliot Morris. He is a data journalist and the U.S. correspondent for The Economist. Uh, he's also the author of Strength in Numbers, How Paul's Polls Work and Why We Need Them. We're talking just uh, eight days before Election Day 2022 about the value of polls, how they work, uh, why Elliot thinks they're uh, good and an important part of the political process, and uh, also where we're headed uh, with polling. We want to hear from you as well during the conversation uh, call and tell us how much uh, you trust polls. How much stock do you put in polls, especially this time of year when we're about to go into the ballot box and make a bunch of important decisions uh, here in southeast Michigan and across the state and all across the country. Uh, let me know, are you somebody who does pay attention to polling and kind of keeps up with it? Or are you somebody who is kind of trying to block that out because you feel like it's noise, that uh, that maybe it's not accurate and maybe it's intended to, to sway you um, illegitimately to make a, a certain kind of decision. Uh, also, if you have any questions about polling, I know lots of folks uh, are sometimes confused about how polls work, how to know how accurate they are. Um, Elliot Morris is uh, absolutely the person to ask about those things. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Um, before we get to our before we get to our listeners, um, I, I want to just just uh, quickly go over some of the tips that uh, you would have for people trying to read polls. I mean, um, you know, percentages. Uh, the gaps in percentages, um, also the the sort of temporal value of polls is one of the things I'm really interested in. That if I ask people on October 15th what they're likely to do, how how predictive is that of what they're going to do on actually on November 8th? Um, you know, this this kind of uh, idea of a snapshot versus uh, uh, you know, a, a moving kind of interest that people that people might have, but 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 talk about how to read polls intelligently, especially this time of year. Yeah, so that's a good place to start, I think, on the snapshot rule. And what pollsters will tell you are that uh, is that they're not coming up with 
predictions of how people will vote on election day, they have a snapshot in time, a measurement on that day of how people feel. Um, and we call it a measurement. Really, I think scientifically we should call it an estimate because of all of this error we were talking about earlier. Um, and so that's the first point, that whatever is estimated by a pollster on whichever day, let's say October, what is today, the 31st, mm-hmm. could change in the next eight days before an election, um, for example. The second, polls um, have a lot of noise, and so therefore you should look at as many as possible instead of just a single poll. Um, and that's why at The Economist, that's why at the, at the Times in 538, we have polling averages. Um, the idea here is if you have, say, 10 individual polls, that the error, that the noise in any given poll could be canceled out by a body of other polls and give you a more reliable reading. So say, say for example, um, actually I have the polls for Michigan's governor race up right now on my computer, and it says, you know, CNN recently have a poll that's Governor Whitmer up 14 percentage points. Mm-hmm. But then there's another poll that has her up only one percentage point over over the Republican challenger, Dixon. Um, what do you make of that? Well, m- maybe you want to go through the poll and interrogate all the assumptions and all the numbers and decide which one you think is, is best. But really, the, the best empirical, historically decision here is to average them together. So plus one and plus 14 become plus seven. And that's and that's your estimate. Um and so that's the second tip is to average as many polls together as possible. Like we were saying earlier, that's not going to give you a final laser-like prediction of, of a horse race election, but it will give you a better idea than relying on one single poll mm-hmm. because you don't have to suffer from the noise. Um, but the third point, and this is a bit more wonky um, and not necessarily something that's broken through the conversation in, in the past, is that the uncertainty on this average of polls is even higher than um, the science of aggregation would imply. The implication being if you had, say, a thousand polls in Michigan, if you average them together, you'd get a perfect prediction. We know that's not true anymore because if, one, say, one group in the country isn't responding to polls from CNN and SSRS, they might also not be responding to polls from, say, the New York Times or, you know, Detroit Free Press or something. And that means that there's a chance for systematic error or bias across polling houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so the third tip here is to sort of imagine in your head around this average that you see on 538 or maybe you're conducting it yourself because you're like a super polling dork like me, <laughs> that that estimate has a margin of error probably of six or seven percentage points on election day and even more before that um, because of this chance that the types of people talking to one pollster aren't talking to other pollsters. So that's what I would tell people. Look at look at the average. Um, consider polling bias, not not just polling error, and that the election could bear out different results from the poll simply because people change their mind after the poll is taken. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, we're going to take for the horse race. Yeah, right, right. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, Elliot Morris of The Economist, author of Strength in Numbers, and we will get going with you on the phones and on social media. Simon in Madison Heights, Frank in Livonia, Karen in Macomb County, you'll be up first if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest is G. Elliot Morris. He's a data journalist and U.S. correspondent for The Economist. He's the author of a book called Strength in Numbers, How Polls Work and Why We Need Them. We're talking about polling with uh, just eight days to go in the 2022 campaign season. There are polls everywhere about every race uh, that we will make a decision on in uh, eight days. Uh, what do you make of all of that information? Are you somebody who tracks the polls pretty closely and uses them to understand what's happening or maybe help you make decisions on election day? Or are you somebody who just kind of screens all of that out? Maybe you don't have a lot of faith in polls or uh, what they are telling us. Maybe you're annoyed by the volume of data about elections. How many polls do we need? Uh, about the governor's race, for instance. As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also join us through Twitter by hashtagging Detroit Today, and we can uh, work your comments into the conversation. Let's begin today with Simon in Madison Heights. Simon, welcome to the show. Hey, happy Halloween. Hey, happy Halloween to you, too. (laughs) Yeah, um... (laughs) I graduated college about 12 years ago uh, from Grand Valley, um, and my first job, just getting out of college, there it was just some stupid hiring fair type of thing, you know, um, was at a call center. Uh, it was a market research firm that mostly dealt with uh, health insurance and radio stations, mm-hmm. and I found out that my boss was extremely racist, or at least just the polling system can seem that way, because one day, you know, you're talking to a majority people of color city, like you're calling Memphis and you can only talk to white people and every white person just hangs up on you and like calls you some kind of epithet or like, mm. you know, gets really, really angry. And then I talked to one poor mixed race person and me being a very naive farm boy from Northern Michigan, I was like, excuse me, well, what, which races? And he's like, you don't know what a mixed kid is. And I'm like, Hey, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> which I have to like answer this question. And they're like, well, why are you calling me? And I'm like, oh, man, you're white today. You know what I mean? Like, I'm talking to the white half. And he's like, that's pretty messed up. You know, but he said effed up. And I was like, hey, it's just if I get sent home without being paid for lunch and I only get a half day because I don't finish one survey today, like, just hold the line, buddy. And, like, he was like, oh. So, <laughs> I Simon, like, yeah. Simon, I want to be clear. I understand what, what you're saying was happening. You were calling – uh, white respondents, and or or it was designed to only have you talk with white respondents. Yeah, yeah, and well, it was a mixed race kid who was black and white, and mm-hmm. I was like, okay, 
Um, well, which, which race do you want to identify with? And first he said black, and I was like, it'll lock me out of the survey if wow. you say that. You That's know? interesting. And I was like, this is profound. And I didn't even know I was being racist all day long for 40 hours a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Simon, I'm really glad you called and, and shared that experience. I mean, I don't get a chance to talk to lots of people who who work on that end of polling. Uh, Elliot, I wonder what you make of what he's describing here. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, I love talking to people or hearing from people from their experience conducting surveys or even being surveyed mm-hmm. because it differs so significantly from the mathematics here. Um, I mean, what it reminds me of in the in the book is there's there's an episode in early polling when it's being conducted door to door. Um, you know, with people with clipboards, like your traditional idea of a 1950s pollster, <laughs> and they, uh, some some wider employees from Elmo Roper's polling operation, he's one of those sort of big three original pollsters, along with George Gallup and Archibald Crockley. And some mm-hmm. of them employees said they didn't feel safe walking in the in Harlem, the black part of um, Manhattan at the time. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't do interviews there. And those sort of the, the opinions that loss of Manhattan were not accounted for most of the time by Elmo Roper's polls. Similarly, George Gallup, um, in devising a survey that would be maximally predictive of election results, um, almost excluded black Southerners from his survey because he said, well, they can't vote if I'm trying to figure out who's going to win the election. There's just not utility in talking to them. And so their voices also were excluded from his polls, at least when he was doing them, of um, of the likely electorate. And I mean, the right. I mean, this is kind of a reminder that these surveys are tools of us as humans. They're going to come with our biases mm-hmm. as um, as people as well. Um, I mean, mathematically, in this case, right. I don't exactly know. Maybe this market researcher was trying to figure out like what things that they could sell to white people in Memphis right. in particular. I right. can't, can't speak to their <laughs> exact goals. Um, but, uh, you know, these days I would say that like that problem, that specific problem has been fixed because we have government data on um, sort of on like mixed races is a government category now. Uh-huh. Um, but that wasn't always the case. I mean, the census essentially just by way of tangent invented the Hispanic category as well. And that's why it gets asked to people. We would have maybe the broader point here is like we have the vocabulary to express ourselves as a public that the pollsters give us. Um, and that is an incredibly powerful tool on the part of the pollsters. It can be wielded for good and it can also be abused. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Simon, I really appreciate uh, the call. And I, I, I love that uh, you've had some experience actually trying to conduct polls. Um, let's go to Frank in Livonia next. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Um, I, uh, I, I'll have to say I don't rely on polls at all. I shut all that information out. Um, the only ones that I'm really interested in are on, you know, Wednesday morning. Well, it, you know, and it might take longer, but, uh, you know, after the polls closed and the results are in, uh, you know, that's based on historical data. We, you know, a lot of the stuff that they've done for, like, Proposal 2, um, 
you know, I think that uh, one of the things that drives a lot of this polling thing is journalists and the and this this drive for the scoop to be the mm. first one to call it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I'm listening to your guest, and he's he's really his basic point is don't you know don't rely on these polls that they're just too close, it's too soft, it's too fluffy of information. If you rely on it, that's on you. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Frank, I, I, I really appreciate that perspective. And, and I, I have to say, uh, not just as a journalist, but as a journalist who was part of the staff, part of the leadership at uh, the Detroit Free Press during the 2016 uh, elections, when uh, we called Michigan for Hillary Clinton very early in the evening because the data from our really long-time super-trusted pollster told us that uh, there were votes coming in in the city of Detroit that had not yet been counted, and that those votes, if you accounted for them and and uh, against what was uh, what was already coming in from out of state, suggested that there was no way that Donald Trump uh, could win the election. I mean, it was one of the most embarrassing mistakes uh, we, we'd ever made at the Detroit Free Press. And, and it, was, uh, about, it was about trying to, to predict, based on uh, a long history of polling, uh, what, what would happen in terms of the turnout in that election. But, but I, I'm also interested in your point about the kind of marriage, I guess, between journalism and polling. Uh, you put it a little more uh, critically, I think, but um, that that there is this reliance on the, uh, on each other uh, that sometimes leads us to irresponsible use. I guess is probably the best uh, the best description of 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 polls. Elliot, talk about talk about that relationship and how how we as journalists uh, should be more careful when we talk about and and make predictions based on the polls. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, look, in, in my capacity at The Economist, I, you know, both average polls um, and create election forecasting models. And those models get a bad rap because, you know, some of them said Hillary Clinton, for example, had a 99% chance to win Michigan, or you know, even the ones that were maybe more reasonable still um, were more favorable to her in the national picture in 2016, similar for Joe Biden in 2020. Um, but, uh, you know, the utility there is twofold. You know, first, journalists are reporting or sorry, responding to, a, I think, a genuine interest from the public that wants to know where the public stands before an election, what's likely to happen, you know, what maybe what their neighbors think or if maybe in a particularly polarized time if they've lost their minds or whatever. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that fuels a drive that journalism responds to. And either that response is going to be the highest quality sort of scientific distillation of the polls, or it's going to be hand-wavy punditry. Mm-hmm. I mean, before we had scientific polls, we had what were called straw polls, and those were you know, nearly as scientific as the ones today. They were, you know, reporters from newspapers like, you know, the Detroit Free Press and smaller papers across the country sending out, sending out one or two reporters to, like, Fourth of July parades and military roll calls and asking people, 
you know, do you, you know, who are you going to vote for? And those are the numbers that got reported on. And those were obviously much less predictive than what we have now. You have betting markets also in the early 1900s that were being reported on in major newspapers. Here's what the betting line is at, like, you know, this fancy Manhattan club for the Wall Street people also making bets on politics, right? And those predictions were worse also. So po- polls are good in the sense that there's no clear replacement. I mean, there's this old Winston Churchill quote, right, that, like, democracy is the worst way of doing things except for all the other ways of doing things. <laughs> right. And that, I think, can be said about polls, too. If you're trying to measure something, then you know, polls aren't going to give you 100% accuracy 100% of the time, but they're going to give you way better accuracy than anything else. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's the first point. But I should say, you know, election forecasts get a bad rap because of these previous predictive misfires. But what they're doing under the hood is really important. When we make an election forecast, I'm essentially mathematically doing what I'm doing in this conversation, just relaying to you how much error and bias there could be in the polls and therefore how much to trust them. Mm. I mean, this message gets a little muddied because we put probabilities on it. And I'm one of the people in the camp that thinks we shouldn't be putting probabilities on it because of this muddying of the information that um, we're trying, we're trying to get across to you. But you know, if I say, well, Whitmer's plus seven in the polls today, but the worst errors in Michigan over the past decade have been about seven percentage points on margin, I, I think that's conveying to you, the caller, something different than me saying, well, Whitmer has a 95% chance to win. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really two ways of expressing the same data point, but I think it, you're getting a much more reliable picture with with the former. And so, um, you know, you're sort of at the mercy of how the election forecasters and the pollsters are choosing to portray information mm-hmm, to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least in our case, we're trying to do a much better job now of, um, of focusing on the uncertainty in terms that people can understand. Um, and so your original sort of opener here was, I don't pay attention to polls at all. Well, I would say don't, don't not pay attention to them at all, but come to them with an acknowledgement of their past failures and an acknowledgement of their sort of fundamental theoretical limitations. Yeah. And maybe think about the polls more broadly, the ones that say, you know, do you want clean drinking water? Do you want, you know, more highway investment? Do you want tax cuts, these sorts of things, rather than the ones about who's going to win the next election. So so one of the other things I think is important to think about is – how accurate polls can be uh, in in predicting voter behavior at a time when the electorate is as volatile as it is, both volatile in terms of its politics. I mean, uh, all the time I sit and marvel at the fact that uh, this is a country that twice elected Barack Obama and then turned around and twice or at one time elected uh, 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 Donald Trump. I mean, whatever you think of either of those candidates, I mean, the swing there is is really profound. Uh, but also in terms of, of turnout, um, it's, it's harder and harder, I think, to predict who will show up on Election Day. And of course, predicting that is key to predicting what those people will do, how those people will vote. I mean, you've got a lot of swirl, I guess, in in all of that. That seems like it it makes the models that you use uh, in in polling 
less reliable than than they would be when things are are more static. Yeah, I mean the the other use for polls here is in figuring out why those voters changed their mind to your earlier point. Not mm-hmm. just the fact that they did, mm-hmm. but asking them questions that maybe pollsters think tap onto salient political issues or um, even asking people to explain themselves in their own words. And again, that's a really incredibly powerful tool that we have no other substitute for um, in uh, as systematic a fashion as sort of polling provides us access to, to, to people. I mean, reporters can do it, but they can't talk to a thousand people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Elliot Morris and with you, Karen and Macomb County, Phyllis and Warren. Uh, we'll get to you next. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. That's an easy way for us to work into the conversation as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking with G. Elliot Morris. He is a data journalist and U.S. correspondent for The Economist. He's the author of a book called Strength in Numbers, How Polls Work and Why We Need Them. I want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, eight days out, uh, how much are you paying attention to the polls that say who will be our next governor or what will happen with the three statewide referenda that are on the ballot. Uh, Does this uh, calculate into your decision-making? Does this uh, annoy you or distract you in a way that you don't appreciate? Uh, And are you somebody who tries to stay away from polling and uh, polling data? I want to hear how you take all of this in and how you make sense of it before we go vote next week. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work into the conversation. Before we get back to our listeners, Elliot, I I want to talk uh, a little about the idea of life without polling uh, and and. What would what what is what is the value, I guess, of us having this massive sort of apparatus to be able to tell what people think, not just in the political sphere, but uh, but well beyond. Um, I know you're you're an advocate for the idea of polling. Tell me. Tell me why. Well, I think the way to start out is in that political hypothetical and then maybe moving a little broader. Um, So, you know, imagine a past decade in American politics where the outcomes from 
the government, where the outputs from Congress and the presidency were all you knew about what Americans wanted from their government. Um, you wouldn't, for example, have knowledge that 80% of people favor universal background checks for gun purchases, mm-hmm. that maybe 55 or 60% favor some sort of universal health care coverage from the government, whether or not, you know, set it, putting, setting aside if that includes getting rid of private health care, which is less popular. Um, and, and you wouldn't know, you know, other sort of less contentious uh, information on less contentious topics like on um, infrastructure funding or, or that sort of thing. Um, because the policy will of Americans as expressed by the government is so much different than what the will is as expressed by the people in their numerical, um, their, the number of them, um, the raw numbers. And, I, you know, that sounds basic. We're talking about two or three policies, but is actually a pretty profound difference when you're talking about what sort of the people are getting out of their sort of social contract with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so those are pretty large political differences, and, and they come from the fact that, you know, the, the electoral institutions in America don't assign winners to a popular vote majority and the presidency or um, in the Senate or even, you know, even really in the House. Um, and they can distort the will of the people. So uh, polls in, in that sense are giving us something um, really profound and, and the tool that people can use when advocating on their behalf to those legislators who don't always represent them. Um, I mean, it, it's just one, it's one more example. Imagine what, what your conception of abortion attitudes in America today would be now that Roe v. Wade um, doesn't exist versus what we know from the polls, which is that 60 percent of people favor sort of a Roe v. Roe v. Wade-like legislation. Mm. Um, but abstracting a little bit from there, right, I mean, the polls, what they're doing is sort of allowing a community to speak for itself, um, at least in the language that the pollster gives them. Um, and that act of surveying a people um, establishes that there is a people to be surveyed. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that is a democratic process. It's a sort of microcosm of the larger democratic process that sort of purports to happen in America. There's this great quote from former president of the American Political Science Association who says that that surveys are the ultimate democratic process because they give everyone an equal chance of participating. You know, whether or not that's true for every single poll, we'll set that sort of aside. But the theory here, at least, is that um, we are giving people a really fair way of participating in democracy, in life, in culture, they wouldn't otherwise have access to by serving them. Um, and that does have consequences. There's lots of examples in my book of presidents and other politicians responding to those cues, whether or not that's a survey in their congressional district or their state house district, whether or not that, uh, or that's just the approval rating of a president. I mean, these things do tend to sway legislators, at least on the margins. I mean, polls were even maybe responsible for John F. Kennedy's enthusiasm 
about Medicare in the 1960 election. Um, and that could have had consequences downstream mm. as well. So just imagine what our world would be like if you couldn't say, oh, the you know, majority of my neighbors think that we should be doing X or Y. Um, that's a very profound thing to do in theory, but also has a lot of real-world consequences um, that I think tend to be positive. Certainly, they're not always positive, mm-hmm. um, but it is democratic, lowercase d, democratic, um, and a society that tends or that is t- sort of trending in the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, again, three one three five seven seven. 1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's go to Phyllis in Warren. Phyllis, what's on your mind? Uh, I'm curious to know about this polling. Do you really believe that everybody answers honestly? Sometimes I suspect that these polls are simply a, an easy way out. I don't have to go vote or I don't have to read a ballot or I don't have to read up on anything. And I think they're kind of a cop-out sometimes. Hmm. I believe they have value for a lot of things, and uh, I, I see it's interesting to do them, but I can't accept them when it comes to politics. And the second thing is, of course, that I have already voted because I vote absentee. Mm-hmm. I do all this studying beforehand. I try to learn as much as I can about every candidate. I am blind, so I have a partner here whom I'm hitting on the head all the time saying, well, what did it say about that? What did it say about that? And my third question is, do you answer, when you're polled, do you give honest answers? Hmm. Uh, those are great questions, Phyllis. Um, I'll take the last one first and say that I I don't answer polls because I'm a journalist, uh, and and I feel like uh, there's a conflict there, right? Um, I, I can't honestly report on something that uh, that I'm that I'm a part of, uh, and so that's kind of, maybe that's a cop out, right? I mean, I kind of instinctively say when they when they call or knock on the door that I can't because I'm a journalist. But, but Elliot, I'm, I wonder what your answer is to that question and the others that Phyllis had. I guess I'd say I don't necessarily, I do not empathize with the um, objection to taking surveys as a journalist. Uh, maybe it's because I'm, you know, I report on the polls. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I want pollsters to have higher response rates and to succeed as an industry. Um but also, you take you take the census, right? Even though you report on democracy, I do take um, the census. And, and, That's true. And it is a poll of sorts. It is a, it is a political survey for political for political means. Um, but I, mean, I guess to the broader question here about whether or not people lie to surveys, um, we know that in isolation there are liars, um, and there are people who exaggerate the truth or who fib, you know, numbers or, or what have you. Um, there's also a sort of documented tendency for people to exaggerate a more socially desirable trait, like their height or weight or income. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, research, it's taken a long time for researchers to understand these things, but you know now we understand them so we can control through them when we're analyzing the data. Uh, but, I mean, the bigger question is not are one or two people lying to me, a pollster? It's are 30 per 40 percent 
of my respondents lying to me because that would materially change the outcome mm-hmm. of your poll. Um, so, yeah, again, I mean, they're not they're not perfect. The uh, accuracy of a poll relies on the vast majority of people making, you know, sort of being honest uh, about their attitudes, their demographics, not every single and not every single one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Phyllis, uh, great question. I'm, uh, I'm glad you called. Let's go next to Brian in Detroit. Brian. Uh, good morning. Hey. I, I'm a firm believer in that I really don't like polls for voters because it, it tends to make people lazy, I think, sometimes when they say, oh, my candidate's, you know, 100 points ahead or one point <laughs> ahead. They tend to stay home. And then that kind of, uh, that's, yeah. that's, I think that's what helped Trump win. Some people thought that Hillary's going to win. The poll said she's going to win. So why spend that half an hour to get out and vote when you can just sit at home? Yeah. yeah. And when people, but I know politicians need polls to let them know when to work harder and do more for different areas. But as a voter, I really hate polls. I really, every time I watch the news and they start talking about polling, say this and that, I just change channels to some yeah. to another news channel huh. that's not really talking about polling. Yeah, Brian, I, I, I really appreciate that point, the idea of the effect of polls on things like turnout. Uh, Elliot, uh, we've got only about a minute and a half left, but uh, but respond to Brian. There's some research that, that affirms this, um, uh, that if you present someone with an election probability, for example, that 99% or whatever Clinton's going to win, then they might not turn out, mm-hmm. or that fewer of them in the hypothetical will turn out, about 10% fewer. Um, there's no real-world evidence for this, I should say, though. All this evidence from social scientists, it's all hypothetical, all experimental online. Um, so it's hard to know how seriously to take it. But I think you raise an um, sort of important point about how polls get reported on. So this is why I like to emphasize the uncertainty, emphasize not the probabilities, but, you know, the historical magnitude of errors or biases in a contest, in a horse race contest. But um, the other sort of point here goes back to what we were talking about, about alternatives earlier, right? If, If we didn't have polls in 2016, if we didn't have, for example, the 538 forecast in 2016 that showed Trump was just a normal polling error away or an above average polling error away mm-hmm. from being president. What we were left with was a bunch of other forecasts that said Clinton had a 98, 99% chance to win, um, and reporters who wrote off Trump completely because they disagreed with him because, you know, he's sort of cantankerous and dangerous in lots of other ways, but, you know, just setting that aside because they disagreed with him. Um, and maybe that was also distorting the picture. Maybe that would have given us an even more distorted picture than what we got yeah. from the yeah. poll. But yeah. it's hard to know. I, I would say in response, yeah, don't base your political behavior, your behavior as a person, on the surveys, um, on on the polling averages, uh, for the exact reason that, yeah. that you bring up. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, Elliot Morris, it was really great to have you here. Congratulations on the book. And... Thanks for helping to explain polling to our listeners. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk with a government studies professor about how political ads have changed over time and whether they are different and take a more combative posture in today's environment. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. 